I'm going to take just a moment and introduce myself. You may know who I am, but if you don't, my name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege for me to be with you this morning. This morning I was up at 6.30, and I was spending some time praying and looking over my notes and the, the text, and God got a hold of my heart this morning, and I was just thought, man, I cannot wait to be here with you guys. And so, yeah, I love Hagerstown Church, love, love worshiping with you guys, and I, I believe the Lord's going to work uh, in our midst this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. We'll be reading in just a moment, Jonah chapter 4. Before, before we actually read it, I want to ask you a question. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're sitting in a circle, and everybody's telling stories. And as it goes, every story gets a little bit better than the last. Maybe it's a story, the, the, the theme of the, the night is danger, and so everybody's telling a story about when they were in danger. Maybe it's a story of humor, and every story gets a little funnier, and the group gets just a little more uh, goofy. You're having a good time, and you're holding in your pocket, as it were, the story that will end all stories. That when you tell that story, everybody else will just be like, that is where we should stop the night. That's where we should end it all because that is amazing. You're, you're holding that story and it's about you and the danger that you've come through or the, the irony that you experienced and you can't wait. And just as you're about to let it drop on the group, somebody steps up and they tell a story that you could never top. And if you were to tell your story now, it'd be lame. And so you hold it for another day. That one story that your friend told at the end, it took the whole thing. It swallowed the entire night and eclipsed everything. It was that good of a story. Some stories just have the power to do that. And some components within a story in and of themselves actually have the power to eclipse the entire meaning of the story. And there's danger in that in a lot of stories. When you include all the details, some components or aspects of it can actually in a sense take away it's not the fault of the story writer or the just the way things fell out it's just the way things happened I would say this morning that one such story is the story that we find in the book of Jonah such a powerful story and has a very clear message but oftentimes one or two of the components or aspects of the story can eclipse it so when we look at the, the, the story of Jonah, if I were to say just one word and you were to tell me what pops into your head, if I say Jonah, what do you think of? Whale, some of you guys are Biblist, uh, Bible believers and you say fish, uh, either way, uh, either way, we associate Jonah with this great fish, we associate Jonah with the whale and I'm here to tell you this morning that the story of Jonah is not about a whale. In 48 verses, the, the whale is mentioned in three of them. God is mentioned in so many more. The story of Jonah is not about Jonah himself. It's not even about the Ninevites. It's about a God who is a sovereign God that rules everything, that is transcendent above all, and yet he condescends and he comes to his creation and he gives them a message and draws them into himself. A small part of that story, as a subset of that, is that when we enter into that, we receive a blessing. And so if this were to be about Jonah, the one thing that we could say about Jonah from this is that he missed that blessing. He missed the whole point. 
And as we look at the, the story of Jonah and we worship the God who is sovereign, as we worship the God who is a missionary God, and we enter into what he's called us to do, may we not be like Jonah and miss the blessing. but May we embrace it and celebrate the results, the work that God does both in our hearts as missionaries and the recipients, those whom he sends us to. It's interesting, the book of Jonah doesn't begin with a title. Most prophets actually uh, begin with some type of an introduction of what's taking place. In fact, the expression, the word of the Lord came to, doesn't start any other book in the Bible except for Jonah. That's it. I think it's a small sign just to say this. The story of Jonah is just part, like all other books, I think that the point is this, it, it draws us in to see that our story, whatever God calls us to do, is really just part of his story. It's part of the greater, grander scheme of things which God is ruling and reigning in. So it's a bit, of a, a bit of an odd book. It starts out with the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And Jonah is sent quickly to Nineveh. At least he's commanded to go. You know the story. We'll move through the, the update quickly and we'll land in chapter 4. But Je- Jonah does not go to Nineveh. And as a matter of fact, Jonah rebels against God. That's the beginning of the irony in this passage, in this story This is one of the most ironic, is, I would say, the most ironic book in the entire Bible. Jonah is the prophet of God, and yet he rebels against God. That's not supposed to happen, right? The prophet is supposed to tell the king or the people something, and then they rebel, but not in this book. Not in this story. So the irony begins. Jonah jumps on a boat with a bunch of dirty sailors with tattoos all over their arms, right? Talking like they wouldn't talk in front of their moms. And yet, in, in that moment, God, he corrects the boat through, this, through the storm. And those sailors' hearts melt. They know this is, something's not right about this storm. There's a divine purpose to the storm. They're sensitive enough to know that. And Jonah is oblivious. Again, the irony Jonah is tossed by the sailors out into the ocean and immediately the the water stops, the the waves cease. Jonah is swallowed by a great fish and there in that fish, he calls on God and he receives mercy. God teaches him in that, the belly of that fish. R.T. Kendall said this and I really like it. He said, the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it's a good place to learn. Jonah learns a little bit, and he's, we'll find shortly that he's not learned at all. He's not arrived yet. But as he repents, the Lord rescues him from that. He spits him out, or actually vomits him out, just to be crude, because that's what the Bible says. He vomits him out. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again, and he says, all right, let's try it again. I want you to go to Nineveh with this message. And Jonah goes to Nineveh reluctantly, and he goes and he preaches Yet here's some more irony. As Jonah the prophet preaches to these pagans, the Assyrians, there in Nineveh, what takes place? The entire city repents. The entire city turns to God and repents in sackcloth and ashes. Totally ironic. That's not the way it's supposed to go down. It's not typical. And yet, yet that's what we read here. What happens? Because they repent, God relents. Because they turn to him, God in his mercy, which by the way, he's the only person in this entire story that does exactly what he he says he would do. 
That's exactly, he, he stays very true to his nature. And then at the end, we find that Jonah is pleased. When he sees that, they repent, right? False. Jonah is not pleased. As a matter of fact, that's where we pick up this morning. Uh, Jonah picks up and lets us know right how Jonah reacts. And so let's look at chapter 4 and read that along with me. The Bible says in verse number 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said? What happened when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade until he could see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because the plant. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And He asked that he might die and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. She came in to being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you again for your word. And as we come to it, we do truly with all of our hearts ask that you would speak to us this morning. God, that you would reveal weakness in us. God, that you would reveal sin in us, not to laugh, not to bring shame upon us, but to draw us in. So that as we see our sin and we repent, you, you forgive and wash us clean. God, this morning as we look at your word, would you remove the cultural lies that have been Lies from the devil. Lies from our own hearts. Lies about you. Lies about ourselves. Would you free us from those this morning? God, most importantly, as we look at you, as we look at your word, would you allow us to see what you want us to see, and that is a reflection of ourselves. Protect us from coming down on Jonah this morning. As so often, we are Jonah. Teach us in the way that we should go. We ask these things again in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we've taken that great fish and we've set him to the side this morning. He's not the point of the text. He's not the point of the text. The point of the text this morning is God. And specifically, our God is sovereign. Our God is a missionary God. And our God is a God who sends us, his people, out with a message of hope 
and of repentance. And as we go, we receive a blessing. The point is for us, the application is that we would not miss the blessing. That we would not miss that blessing. Let's look first at sovereign. This idea of being a sovereign God. It means possessing supreme and ultimate power. That's always where we have to start. So often, even in the last five months, we've talked about this sovereign God. And you might think, well, that's just too much. Enough is enough. And yet that's where the scriptures begin. The most important thing that God would want us to know, first and foremost, is that, is that he is a sovereign God. He possesses all power and all authority. And time and again, we're pointed to, back to that truth. And so even this book If you had to distill it all down, that's one of the main things that it wants to teach us this morning and demonstrate to us is that God is sovereign. Where do we see that? Where do we see it? Well, in verse 4 it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God was able to start and stop a storm according to his good pleasure. He had an intended outcome And he used the sea to bring that about. The waves ceased exactly whenever he wished them to cease. Even Jonah, as he's in the belly of the sea, praying, calling out to God, what does he say? Your your billows, your waves have come over me. The writer is making it very clear that the, the Lord is sovereign over creation. But not just the water, but also what's in the water. It says here that, that, that God had prepared or appointed a great fish to swallow, right? The, to swallow Jonah up. And the language leads us to believe that this large fish is waiting right there in just the right time, at just the right GPS coordinates. He's right there with his mouth wide open, and as maybe not that's maybe that's not how it worked out. But the fish was in just the right place at just the right time. I told you there's tons of irony. We won't I won't point it all out, but if you think about this, the prophet of God. Is told exactly where to go and where to be and what to do, and he doesn't do it. Here God appoints a fish, a mindless fish, we would think, right? And it does exactly what it's commanded to do. Here's a dad joke for you. That's why fish is brain food, right? Because fish are actually not as dumb as they look. And so the more we eat fish, maybe, uh, maybe the, the smarter we'll get, the more obedient to God we'll get. I, I would lean more on reading your Bibles, but you could try it. The fish is even obeying God. He's sovereign over this creature in the sea. Another way that we see God's power over creation is through an extra-biblical text. And Nineveh was at this time in a, in a national crisis. You can look at some other texts and find these things out. But it's recorded that about this time that there had been an eclipse. So the hearts of this superstitious pagan people, as they see the eclipse, God uses that to prepare their hearts and Jonah, not knowing that this would be a good time to go and not desiring to go anyway, finds himself there in Nineveh at just the right time where their hearts are just so sensitive and tender. And the Lord uses that eclipse, I believe, to prepare their hearts. Accompanying that is, this strange phenomenon is, is also the political downturn in, in Assyria. They are, economically, politically, they are struggling right now as a people. They're struggling. God knew that as well and is sovereign as he sends Jonah to them at just the right time. And then there's this gourd in chapter 4. We'll read that in just a moment. But, or, we, or we did, but God appointed this plant 
to come up and, and, and provide some shade and some cover for Jonah. He appointed that. He appoints the fish. He appoints this gourd. And then he appoints a worm. He's sovereign over all of these things. They all submit to his authority, to his control and to his power. And that worm destroys the gourd. And then again, after the worm, the wind is appointed. And it comes. There's no cool summer breeze there either. As the, it says the wind beats on them. It's a, actually a terrible thing. It's super hot winds blowing over him constantly and coming over that barren wasteland, heating up, picking up bits of sand. Jonah gets to the point where he's, his own heart, he's ready to die. He's ready to give up. He's had enough. All of these things God has sovereignly appointed. It may seem to some that these are just coincidences all coming together. Jonah's having a bad day. Everything's just aligned just so, but it's not. It's a precise plan of God. It's the will of God being made known and manifest as a gifted artist would, pulling all things together. So we see here from an astronomical level all the way down to a microscopic level that God is authoritative. He's sovereign over all of creation. He's also sovereign over all of the creatures that are in his creation. Not just the wind, not just the water, but he's sovereign over Assyria as well. And that's easy for us to forget. We spend so much time the last five months focusing on the people of God, the children of God, the Israelites, the prophets, the kings, the people. We're tempted to believe and almost lulled into this forgetful state that God is sovereign over all of, cre- all of creation. And every creature, every single man, sovereign over them all. Many people in the world today ignore God. And they assume that he returns the favor. Many people believe that, that God set the world into motion and allowed it to continue along unnoticed as some sort of cosmic clockmaker. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God is active in the way that he rules and reigns this world. We are all subject to him, including the Ninevites. Remember this. As you think of the Ninevites, also in in their pagan nature, think of Abraham, the patriarch. Who was he but basically a Ninevite before the Lord came to him? Before the Lord revealed to him and sovereignly drew him out of Ur of Chaldees, sent him to the promised land. Imagine that. This This is God. Sovereignly working and ruling over his people. Part of that, the reason why I brought up Abraham is it reminds me back to the the promise that God made to him. That through him all the, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And even that was a further fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, which is the first mention of the gospel, the first promise that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is spoken to the snake, the serpent. It's the first mention of the gospel, the good, the good news. And it involves the children of Israel, right? But the, it will come through the children of Israel, that blessing, that Messiah. But the benefits weren't just for the Jews alone. The promise to Abraham is that all of the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, Israel was intended to be a light to the nations in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 49, 6. If you're taking notes, that'd be a, a good one to write down and revisit. Isaiah 49, 6. 
God is speaking and he says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob and to bring back the the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. (laughs) What a promise. What a position that Israel had as the light to the nations. In the New Testament, one, one reads of the believer's responsibility to be ambassadors, to be reconcilers of that good news among the people of God to the ends of the earth. And this, this passage in Jonah, it portrays beautifully God's concern for those who are outside of his will and outside of his plan and how he uses his disciples to draw them in. And that, that's exactly why God gives the Ninevites 40 days to repent. 40 days to see the seriousness of their sin, of their danger and the the predicament that they're in. And so God is sovereign in all creation and he's sovereign over all creatures. What do we say to that? What does that induce in us? How do we respond to that? I'm not sure there's actions specifically for us this morning, but there's three states of mind and I want to bring them to you this, this morning. The first is this, it should render, as you consider this God, it should render us in submission. It should render submission in our hearts. As we think of a God who rules and reigns, and not in some mindless manner, but in a specific way, with specific instructions that he's given to his creatures, both through natural revelation and through special specific revelation, he's spoken to us, and we must submit to that. We must submit to him this morning. The very air that we breathe and the life that we borrow is God's. So submission should come from that. But it should also induce in us hope. I remember the old hymn, one of my favorites, This is my Father's world. The third stanza goes like this. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that thought the wrong seems oft so strong. God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. As we think about that, as we look around and we see the culture that we are in at large and then we zoom into our lives and we see the difficulties that we face, we, as we consider the truths of God, are reminded that he is sovereign over all of this and in that we gather hope. We gather hope. And so if Yahweh is God over all creatures and all mankind, doesn't it follow that he would also be a missionary God? Doesn't it also follow that he would be a missionary God? The, the book of Jonah reminds us that the Lord's compassion is extended even to those who are beyond the borders of Israel. Even those who don't claim the name of Jacob or of Abraham or Isaac. This very word mission, it conveys the idea of sending or being sent. The the missionary God is a God who either sends or sends himself. And it describes God, that that, that language describes God to a T. Even in the way that he functions within the Godhead, if you consider this. The Father sent the Son. 1 John 14, it says this, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is how God, this is his nature. It's not just, oh, all of a sudden here in Jonah. Jesus, the, the, the one slain before the foundations of the earth. God had already in, in some sense sent Jesus, his son. It wasn't an afterthought. 
God wasn't looking to, to garner more support, more followers, because uh, tuition uh, rates were going higher. And they needed more people there at, uh, on campus. That's not what was taking place. He wasn't trying to farm out and expand his rule that was already there. And the God who was sovereign over the Ninevites is a God who was a missionary to the Ninevites. The Father sent the Son. The Father, uh, the second thing is the Father and the Son send the Spirit. First John, or I'm sorry, John 14 says this. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So we see this mystery of, of this relationship between Jesus and the Father working together to send the Spirit, another helper. And then uh, the third way that we see the, the nature of God is Jesus sends the church out into the world. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Jesus says this, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's our God. This is in his nature. He'd be a sender. He'd be a missionary God. But who is God sending Jonah to at this time? Well, let's look at the Ninevites. The Ninevites uh, were uh, Assyrians. And the, the, the city of Nineveh was a capital city. Perhaps many believe that it was at that time. Assyria had shrunk so much and Nineveh had actually become the capital of Assyria at that time. We're not exactly sure. But either way, it was one of the main cities of the Assyrians. And it was a well-known city to the Israelites because the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were their mortal enemies. Nineveh was famous for their violent crimes against humanity. We won't get into the, to the details that we can see in extra-biblical accounts, but it's terrible. It's horrendous. The fear tactics that they would uh, employ. So it wasn't a r- random city. This idolatrous, idolatrous people Jonah knew very well. And like Sodom before him, the sin of Nineveh had come up before God. God, the God who is long-suffering, God who is merciful, the God who is patient and gracious, sends Jonah to cry out against it and to prophesy in an act of mercy. So in response to God's missionary efforts, the Ninevites repent. That's my testimony, that God would come to me, a pagan man, in so many respects. He would send the gospel to me, and that through his power, by his mercy, I would repent. And I hope that that's your testimony this morning as well. So consider this sovereign God and this missionary God. As a prophet of the sovereign missionary God, you would think that Jonah would be very pleased when this took place. You think about that. Like the goal of a prophet is to share the word of God and to hopefully see some results, right? That's what they desire. Any pastor, any missionary, any prophet, a prophet ever in the history of mankind, if they would have been in this situation, what would they have done? They would have rejoiced. They'd have been overwhelmed. They'd have been excited about what God was doing as they preached the message and people repented. But Jonah was displeased with what pleased God. It's a terrible thing to be said about, to have said about you. The thing that pleases God is the thing that displeases you. Imagine being on that, uh, being in that type of relationship with God. The thing that He displeases pleases you, and vice versa. It's a bad, a bad thing to be said of you, right? Yet this is where Jonah finds himself. Again, this is just more of the irony. 
Here's the highest point of irony, in my opinion, in this entire book. In Jonah chapter 2, as he sinks to the bottom of the ocean in the belly of this fish, he calls out to God, spare my life, in so many words. He appeals to God's steadfast love and his mercy, and then he receives it. And he turns as he is in the shadow of the grace that he's just received, and he will not extend it to the Ninevites for whatever reason dive into that a little bit this morning but that is the greatest piece of irony this morning the one who had just so recent and fresh received grace and mercy from God would not extend it to the Ninevites you remember I said that our God is sovereign and that he's missionary and he sends his people into the world with a message of repentance and hope and this is the this is the part we're moving towards now that as we go we receive a blessing But you know, we've already talked about this, Jonah did not actually receive a blessing. He missed that blessing. As a matter of fact, when Jonah sees the results of of the work that he had done, that God had done through him, rather, he had quite the opposite response. He comes to the point where no less than three times in chapter 4, he tells God that he wants to die. He's ready to die. Why? There in verse 2, he says, he, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. It's remarkable that Jonah is not using that phrase, those terms, to praise God. He's going on a tirade against God. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, we read God saying these very things about himself at the base of Mount Sinai. He says these things that I'm a gracious God, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. Jonah takes those very words and he uses them almost like they're, it's a cuss word against God. I knew that you'd do this. This is how you are. So ironic. So the blessing that I spoke of that, that we see now, is, it, it, it's predicated upon your response to the fact that God is a missionary God. So as we ask this question, will you receive the blessing that Jonah missed? I'll answer you by saying this. It depends on your response to the truth that God is a missionary God. How, how do you respond to that? We see here in the text that Jonah responds in anger. And I'm going to break that down a little bit. Jonah literally hated what God had done. Hated it. He said it was evil. Exceedingly evil. It was terrible. Utterly against it. Anger inflamed. Why was he so negative? There's lots of different ideas as to why. And I'm sure it was probably a a combination of several of them. But I, I believe part of it was a nationalistic hate. A nationalistic hate. Jonah had come to the point where he loved his nation. He loved his country. He loved his heritage. He loved it so much that he was willing to die for it even to that point. And anything else that came in the way of that or stood opposing his nation, his family, his nationality, he hated. People daydream and wonder, well, perhaps he had some special hatred against the Assyrians because something they had done against his family or against that country. And no doubt, as we talked about a moment ago, the Assyrians were mortal enemies. 
In the days of David and Saul, it was the Philistines. We don't hear much about those folks at this point in the timeline. Now we hear a lot about the Assyrians and how they plagued the people of God. So maybe it's a nationalistic hate. Maybe it's just a, a narrow-minded Hebrew prophet holding on to the bitterness against Israel's enemies. A, a part of that, right? Maybe he's just afraid that since Nineveh wouldn't be destroyed, that they would continue to oppress God's people, Israel. It's not a bad thing to, to, to be against, and yet God in his mercy sends him, and he hates it. Either way, his motivations, we know this, were selfish and ungodly. Selfish and ungodly. It led him to be angry. At the very worst, we see a prophet with shocking disregard for human life and a bitter hatred toward those who had experienced mercy. I'm going to ask you this morning, has your response to God's grace in the lives of others ever brought about anger? You might say, well, no, no, I don't think so. Continue to consider that. Let's, let's stay here for a moment. Take a, take a moment and consider whether you are at all like Jonah in this. Maybe some of you, uh, your incorrect attitudes will, will come to the surface and God will reveal to you. Again, we'll, we'll end here, but I think in many ways the book of Jonah is a mirror. God is showing ourselves through this prophet. Let me ask you this. Are you only concerned about Hagerstown Church? As a Christian here this morning, are you mostly, only concerned about Hagerstown Church and those whom you know that are even maybe here this morning or those who are out of town? But this are for no more in, in so many words, and so, and so to speak. Are you mainly only concerned for those who are in other congregations or, or are you against those who are at other congregations or who don't attend? Are you against those who are not even here this morning or are those who are not attending church at all, or not even Christians, but here in Hagerstown. Let me ask you this in another way. Is, is serving, whether it be here at the church or in your community, at your work, is serving only important to you if it provides some sort of benefit to yourself? Is there some sort of selfish motivation for the reason why you do the things that you do? If so, perhaps you're not that different than Jonah. Jonah lost his temper and had some crazy extenuating circumstances that are surrounding what's taking place here. But who he, who he was on the inside was just a selfish, selfish man. You may not call out and come to the place where you say, I'm ready to die. I give this up. You may not look just like that on the outside, but maybe you're not so different on the inside. Let me ask you this, have you opened your life completely to God's grace and compassion and love if you're not even willing to love those who have offended you deeply? Are you truly, completely open to God's grace and compassion and love if you're not even willing to extend that to others? This is where Jonah's stuck at. You might say, well, I don't look like that. I'm not done just like he's done, but maybe... You have, or maybe you're not so far from that. Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant found in Matthew chapter 18 makes a pretty good parallel to this passage. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of a man who is kind of going through his books and saying, hey, I've got to go find, call these numbers and, and collect on some debts. 
He gets this one man who owes him quite a bit of money. The man says, I, I can't pay you. He said, well, then you'll just have to go to prison. The man begs for mercy, and the guy gives it to him. A huge amount of money, just forgiven. Mercy extended. And the man walks away thinking, man, I'm in really good shape. This morning I didn't have anything, and I was in debt. Now I don't have anything, and I'm just, but I'm not in debt. Hey, but there's a guy that owes me some money. And he chases that fella down, and he says, hey, pay up, bro. You owe me 10 bucks. And the guy says, I, man, it's been a hard week. I can't afford to do that this week. I know I owe it to you. Can I pay it to you next week? Can I, can I, can I make, could you, could you just forgive that debt? It's not much. I'd be, I'd be, so, be so grateful. The guy loses his mind, right? And has him thrown in prison. Is there any difference between Jonah? As he's rescued from the, the, the bars, even in chapter 2, as it says, rescued from the bars, from the prison, the watery grave. Sent on his way with that same message of mercy. He's not willing to give it out. He's not willing to extend it. Not even to the same level that he had been given. He's not willing to extend any. A terrible and sad commentary on the life of Jonah. May it not be said of us. May he and this missionary God rescue us from that terrible mindset. The book of Jonah conveys this message in a unique way by showing us that there's a man who doesn't love his neighbor. And from our perspective, it's very embarrassing for Jonah. If you think about it, think about the life of Jonah. He doesn't see it, He's he's in the thick of it. He doesn't see what he's doing, but as we see the play unfolding in front of us, we're embarrassed for Jonah. that He can't even see what he's doing. And so anger is one response to the grace that God extends to us. That's one response. But what about celebration? That's another. Celebration. Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 15 says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Imagine that. There's more rejoicing over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who don't need any repentance. So what does heaven do when the sinner repents? They all rejoice. It's a celebration. It's a party. When you celebrate the repentance of another, you demonstrate a few things, and I want to show you that this morning. So if you come to the point where when you see repentance in the lives of others, If you celebrate, that says two things about you. First, it says this. It shows that you believe God's love is not divided or lessened when others come into the fold. You believe that God's mercy is unlimited and that the blood of Jesus becomes no scarcer at the purchase of another lost one. Imagine the the difficult situation that a young child would find themselves in as they realize that mom and dad are bringing into the world another just like them. He's going to be baby brother. It's dangerous, right? The love cannot be spread abroad. There's only so much mom and dad. And now it'll be split. My life is ruined. Actually, a funny story. You could find out a little bit more uh, if you ask me afterwards. But my life was actually in danger as, as cute as I was. When I entered into the world, my sister hated me for it. Right? Why? Why? Because the attention was now divided. Well, that may be true. The love might be split among our children. It's not true of God. 
And when one sinner repents, the host of heaven does what? They rejoice. They don't believe that the blood of Christ or the love of God or even his spear that is in us is any lesser or scarcer. So naturally, we grade sinners and sins by our own standards. We look at those around us in our church, on our street, in our neighborhoods, and we grade the sins and we grade the sinners, and we automatically put it into a pecking order. There's a settling in our minds. Whether we list it out on paper or not, we know. As we look at those who are far more sinful than us, perhaps we get to the point where we we struggle to celebrate. We're tempted and even shocked sometimes when we see that certain people come to Christ. We may be thinking, how could they be forgiven? Some of you say, well, I would never think that. I would never feel that way. I'm going to perform a little test for you. Imagine you hear of grandma repenting and and having trusting faith in Christ. As you think of her, you think, well, nobody's perfect, right? Well, grandma, she's pretty close. I'm really glad The Lord has welcomed her into the fold. Welcome, Grandma. Your neighbor who never mows his yard and his dog prefers your front yard over their own. That guy, you find out he repents of his sin and he's welcomed into the fold of God and you think to yourself, well, God loves to save sinners. God loves to save sinners. And you think, well, you know what? Good good work, God. What about the murderer? You find out about a murderer who has repented of their sin and placed their faith in God. There's no, uh, there's no shortage of these types of shows. Now in our culture, they're all over the television. We're infatuated with this type of sin, this heinous act, murder. Think, how could a murderer truly receive repentance from God? As you hear about that, you say, well, that murderer has repented of their sin. They've placed their faith in Jesus. Well, no one's too far gone. God can, can save anybody. But even in your own heart, do you feel as it's getting tighter and you think, could, could God really save a murderer? Do they really deserve it? It becomes less and less easy to celebrate. It gets worse. What about the rapist? What about the rapist? Would you say, would you celebrate if the, if the rapist repents of their sin? What about even farther, the one who abuses children or the one who commits uh, heinous acts against an entire group or nation of people? What about them? Could they even receive repentance? Could they even receive faith in Christ and be welcomed into the fold? And you see that even as we walk through that scale, that grade, it becomes less and less easy for us to celebrate, doesn't it? If If we were honest, you see, when we see our own sinfulness, we recognize that it's just as terrible as the next. It's just as heinous. It's just as awful to God. And it deserves just as much wrath as the next. Come to the point where when we see a sinner repent, we celebrate. For two, two reasons. One, God has welcomed in another to the fold. But in addition, it reminds us of our own repentance, of our own, the, the grace that God has extended to us. And we truly come to the place where we repent because we say, or we rejoice because we say, that is me. That's my story. So far from God, unable to come to him. And he came to me. He washed away my sins. So God extends his grace to the Ninevites. Jonah has an issue with it. 
Jonah asks this question. Why would God save them? Why would he do that? Why would he save them? They're they're terrible people. You might say, well, I'm not there. For the most part, I would celebrate when people come. You might even say this morning, I'm asking the opposite of that question. I'm asking, why wouldn't God save them? That's my question this morning. Not why would God save them, but why wouldn't God save them? God, why won't you do this? You become prideful even to the point where you say, God should save and will save. Let's do it. And we completely gloss over the fact that God has saved you at all. Ask that question this morning. Why would God save you? Not, don't think of this church collectively as a group. Just think about yourself. As nobody else knows you, only you, you know your thoughts. You know your deeds, the actions that you've committed against God, against family members, against brothers and sisters, maybe even in this room. See yourself there and say, why would God even save you? Jonah, that was a foregone conclusion that he would be saved. It was a foregone conclusion that God's grace and mercy would come to him. Of course it would. Of course it would. What pride and what arrogance. So before we begin to ask questions about who else should come to God, let's ask the question first, why should we come to God? Why should we be invited in? What a beautiful place to be. We realize that we have nothing in and of ourselves to offer God. We don't deserve any goodness from him. We only deserve his wrath. And yet, as Christians, Christ has taken that. And he's given us his righteousness. And become a conduit of God's love towards us. The book of Jonah, it ends abruptly. And at the very end, God asks a question kind of blows our minds because we like resolution. We like issues to be resolved. We don't know where Jonah's at because God ends with a question. He says, you pitied the plant, there in verse 10, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right from their left? Have you ever come to the end of putting a puzzle together you find out that you're missing a few pieces. You ever been to that place? Talk about losing your mind, right? What? You begin to see, okay, well, there's only five or six pieces. It doesn't look like there's going to be enough. You get to the end, and the last person who did the puzzle, peace be upon them, right? They did not put the, the piece in the puzzle. They weren't careful to do that, right? That makes you go crazy. That just happened to us last week. How in the world? Take the puzzle, put it away, throw it in the trash can. It's done, right? We don't want that to ever befall another person. We don't like it to not be resolved. Is that what's happening in this book? As we come to the end, is somehow the last final piece of Jonah, did it fall away? Is it missing? No, this is a tool. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the author ends with this question. So if you... This morning, as you see yourself a little more clearly, as you look through this lens of Jonah, this mirror, and God begins to reveal to yourself a little bit more about yourself, if you say, I look a little bit more like Jonah than I thought I did. I'm a little more selfish. A little more um, self-centered. What are you to do about that? The answer 
to that question is in God's rhetorical question that he gives to Jonah here at the very end. So let's look at that. The first thing that God is drawing his attention to is that he is the sovereign Lord. Look at verse 10. There's an emphasis there. You have been concerned about this vine. You're concerned about this plant, this gourd. In contrast, there's another emphatic pronoun, and it's I in verse 11. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God in his mercy is acting the part of a missionary even to Jonah, who is again running from the Lord. Spiritually speaking, not physically, not geographically, but God comes to him and says, no, 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 Jonah, listen. You, you, you've been concerned about this plant. Should I, should I not be concerned about this great city? You see, the will of the creator is far more important than the will of the creature. The, the will of the creator is far more important than the will of the creature. You see, God doesn't need you to set the agenda. He's already set it. Did you hear that? He, he doesn't need you to set the agenda. He, he's already set it. He doesn't need somebody to, to tell him what's valuable and what's not. He does that. He's the sovereign Lord. Remember that. It's the first thing we looked at this morning. God is sovereign. And so how do we come to the place where we celebrate the missionary God? Well, we see that he is sovereign. You Think about this. So often we mistake God's kindness for weakness. Think about that. We mistake God's kindness for weakness. We think because he loves us so much, because he gives so much to us that he's all about us, and it, if we're not careful, we'll misinterpret the gifts that he gives us and the love and mercy that he extends, and we'll think it's because something that we've done, and we'll think, now we call the shots, and that's just not the case. So many Christians today are, in a sense, spoiled. And they've been lulled into thinking that God is about them. And that God cares more about their wants and their desires than he does his own. It's too late in the game for you to come and show up and call the plays. God calls it. And while you may be concerned about the gourd, while you may be concerned about the vine, God is concerned about Nineveh. And so the will of the creator is far more important than the will of the creature. I also want to point out one more thing about this question that God asked to Jonah. He contrasts that small plant with 120,000 people plus cattle. And just the cattle alone, he's saying, the cattle alone, one cow, isn't that more valuable than one plant? Let alone 120,000 people. It just depends on how you read that. Some people read it and say that don't know their left from their right means toddlers. And therefore there's more like 600,000, 700,000 people, over half a million. And that's a possibility. More than likely, I, I believe that not knowing the right from the left, is a, they don't know nothing. They don't know anything spiritually speaking. They're so blind and they need the message of repentance and of hope. Would you give it to them? Jonah is so, more, so much more concerned with this plant than he is with his people. God is saying, the Ninevites are my creation also. 
They're my, crea- they're my creatures as well. And as part of God's highest creation, he's saying, I formed them in their mother's womb. You think about that. We love that passage. As we think about abortion and how it's terrible, it's the, the murder of a human being. We say, no, before we were even formed in our mother's womb, God knew us and he shaped us and he fashioned us there in that sacred space. We think that of ourselves and we think that of our own children, but it's also true of the Ninevites. That God had formed them in their mother's wombs as well. In that sacred space, God is saying to Jonah, he's saying, I I want you to see that the eternal has more value than the temporal. He said, that little plant that you're so concerned about, it, it sprang up in a day and it was gone in a day. And yet we've got these people that I've created, made in my image. Are they not more valuable He said, that plant, it's gone. The souls of men will last forever. James tells us that the grass, vegetation, flora, what does it do? It it fades away. But he says, the word of God won't fade away. And the souls of men, they will last forever. Either in the presence of God or in hell and damnation, apart and separate from God. I'm going to ask you this question this morning as we come to a close. Are you more enamored with the temporal? The things in life, you say, well, I'm I'm not angry against God. I wouldn't really say I'm celebrating the missionary God and embracing that and going. Maybe you would say, I'm more indifferent. Honestly, I'm not that and I'm not this. I'm kind of right in the middle. And I would say to you, "That's that's probably the most dangerous place for us to be this morning. To be lulled into this place where we're indifferent. Indifference oftentimes is nothing more than distraction. And here we see a picture of Jonah being so distracted by this silly plant. And forgetting the value of all of these people created in God's image. So God's comparing these two. And it helps if we get them on the same table, out in front of each other, side by side. And we say, this one's temporal, this one's eternal. That's what we do when we buy anything, right? We compare, even virtually now, we can compare several things. Put them side by side and see the stats on them. Which one's more valuable? So as you think about it in your life, I won't specific, or be specific about any certain action. But think about the things in your life that have no eternal value. In and of themselves, they're not right or they're not wrong. But they're distractions. They lead to indifference. They cloud our judgment. Takes the emphasis away from the image of God and the message of God that he has called us to do as it relates to image bearers. Think of those two things together. This is what God is calling us together this morning. As Jonah sits there on that hill looking at the city of Nineveh, he sees the plant on the ground withering, dying. In the background, he sees the people. He hears their cries to God. He, he hears the, 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 the cattle. They're calling as well. They withhold food. They're fasting as well. And in some ways, they're mourning. More irony, right? Jonah can hear all of that. He sees those two things together. I'd like to think that this missionary God finally gets through to the missionary. He begins to see what was taking place as he sees these two things face to face, the eternal and the temporal. 
On July 22, 1975, photographer Stanley J. Foreman, working for the Boston Herald American newspaper, picks up an emergency on the police scanner. There's a fire, a fire on Marlboro Street. So he climbs into a, 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 his car. He gets all the way down to Marlboro Street. He sees the fire truck. He sees smoke billowing out of the apartment building. And there on the fifth floor, outside on the fire escape, is a young lady and a, and a, and a, and a young girl. He gets in a fire truck and he's, he, he's taking uh, uh, pictures of this as, he go, as, as, the, as the, the, the crane moves forward, as the ladder goes forward. And the, the firefighter is just moments away from rescuing this young lady, this little girl. And right before they get there, as the, the flames are just pouring out, the heat is becoming more intense. As they lean out away from the fire, away from the heat, the fire escape collapses and they fall. Mr. Foreman is taking photos. He, he believes with everything in him that he's about to, to witness and capture this rescue. If it had only been just a moment longer, they could have got there. They could have rescued these two folks. And instead of taking a picture of the rescue, he takes a picture of the descent of these two human beings. It's a terrible photograph. It's a terrible photograph. Photograph's called Fire on Marlboro Street. It's a black and white photograph. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it in 1976. It's a haunting photograph. Suspended in, for all of time in that photograph are two human beings and next to them is a plant. It's a potted plant that was sitting on the outside on that fire escape. Here's what I want to draw your attention to. Nobody is looking at the pot. Nobody. When we see these two human beings falling, that's what we see. How foolish would it be for us to be concerned about this plant? Nobody, I I would guess, has ever said, that poor plant, it meant so much to me. It meant so much to us. It's so valuable. No, we look at it and we say, "It's, it's temporal. There's no value assigned to it. Not in relation to these two image bearers. And the point I would like to make for you this morning is that God is suspending these two things in front of you and he's calling you as a missionary God. He's calling you to action. And he's saying, work. Go with this message. The message that you have received. Don't get caught up. Don't be distracted by these plants. Whatever that plant is in your life, don't be distracted by it. Don't focus in on that. At the end of the day, Diana Bryant, she made it. The young lady, the young girl, she made it. Her godmother wasn't so lucky. She didn't didn't survive the fall. As we leave this place this morning, I want to just challenge you to consider this. The sovereign God of this universe, he's a missionary God, and he is sending us with the gospel to those who are falling. The flames of hell are hot on their faces as they lean away from it, unbeknownst to the danger that they are even facing. May we not be distracted with the plants, the other simple, silly things. May we be a church who gladly submits to that God and joyfully goes with his message of hope, being careful not to be distracted so that we, unlike Jonah, may receive the blessing. Would you pray with me? God, this morning we ask you 
as a merciful God to forgive us from being a people so easily distracted. God, forgive us for for spending so many of the resources that you've given to us, both our time, our money, our relationships, things that have no eternal value. God, we as your people, we submit ourselves to you this morning. You are our sovereign. You are the authority in our lives. And so we submit ourselves to you in that. We recognize that you are a missionary God. God, may it never be said of this church, may it never be said of these families that what pleases you displeases us and what pleases us displeases you. May we, like you, see the eternal and run headlong for it with the gospel. The hope that you will turn those in darkness back to yourself. May you receive the glory as your people go. And may we receive a blessing. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.